The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Listen as I read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. We should be thinking carefully of what it is God might be saying to us, just as he once inspired it so long ago. I remember distinctly an occasion when I was a boy, and on a particular day, I found out that witnessing an event might raise the expectations of other people for you to tell what you had witnessed. The day was uh, an ordinary day. I was in my front yard. I don't recall what I was doing, but I know I had to be in the front yard, kind of minding my own business. I was about 12 years old. And about 50 yards away from my house was a rather busy intersection. You could see it clearly from my yard. And this was an intersection where there were frequent accidents. Well, I was in my yard, and I suddenly heard the screech of brakes, and naturally my eyes looked, my attention went, and you know how you see things almost like they're in slow motion for a moment as, a, as an accident unfolds. Sure enough, two cars collided the intersection about, I'd say, about 150 feet from me. Now, the crash seriously damaged both cars, but happily no one seemed to be hurt. Both drivers were out of their cars quickly, and The one driven by a young man was a very vocal person who was quite angry because he was claiming that the other driver had not had a turn signal on, and that was why the accident in in his version happened. A neighbor boy about four or five doors away uh, must have heard uh, this crash and came, and so did some other neighbors to 
you know, something happens in the neighborhood. People gather to see what's going on. And, and so my friend was standing there next to me while we watched, and the police came. It wasn't too long after the policeman had talked to the drivers that he turned to those of us that were standing and looking on. And I, by the way, had told my friend that I saw the accident. That was a mistake, I think. Because the policeman walked over to the group of neighbors who were there, and he said, did anyone witness this accident? Now, I'm not entirely sure that I would have kept quiet when asked by a policeman, but I wasn't totally happy that my friend was the one who said, he did, pointing to me. And therefore, within a few minutes, I was invited to come and sit in the front seat of the patrol car, which was a place I'd never been before, or since, I don't think, and uh, answer a lot of questions for a policeman with a clipboard who was writing down my responses. This was a very intimidating experience for me. I felt very weak and vulnerable and, frankly, maybe just a little bit afraid of being in this adult environment, and particularly because the questioning centered on, did I or did I not see a left turn signal on in the one car? Of the, You know, I already told you that the one driver angrily declared the turn signal was not on. I told the policeman I saw the turn signal. And so I was thinking to myself as I was saying this, This man is angry. Is he going to become even angrier that a 12-year-old boy has disagreed with him? Maybe he'll come after me or something. All told, it was not a terribly comfortable or enjoyable experience, my first time of legal witness-bearing. The discomfort that I felt in that situation, I think, is at least somewhat similar to the way many Christians tend to feel when anyone brings up the subject of witnessing about your faith. Witnessing. That, I would say, is about as popular a subject with many people in churches as the sermons on tithing your money. People, uh, oh, witnessing, yes, um, hmm, that's something I'm supposed to do, but you know, I'm just not comfortable with that. I'm not good with words. Uh, I think the preacher can do that better than me. That's what we pay missionaries to do. Witnessing is not exactly a popular topic. It makes many people sort of bow their heads and, and go underground in their Christian living like a mole because they feel embarrassed. They feel they could not do this. They feel that there are techniques or skills or or something that they would need to learn that they haven't learned, and they cannot be a witness. Well, last time we considered the beginning of this book of Acts, which connects the four Gospels with the New Testament letters. I said it is a vital hinge of the New Testament. There'd be enormous things we wouldn't know at all without Acts. And it's a book that shows us how Jesus, who began to do the work God appointed to him in the Gospels, continued to do that work through people he called to serve him, and more importantly, through the Holy Spirit, who empowered and enlivened the lives of those people we call apostles. And I I said, by way of just general introduction last time, that we ought to see here that 
the Acts of the Apostles, which could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, tell us that that same Holy Spirit is still working out the actions of Jesus in this world through our lives. Although the apostles were unique, still God's Spirit works in us and makes us witnesses. Now, we, we tend to lionize, you know, these first century witnesses. We say, wow, look at them going out. You know, they defied jail and everything else to speak of Christ. Well, it must be because they were firsthand witnesses. And if I'd been a firsthand witness, I guess I would have been courageous and strong like they were. But the fact is that the first century witnesses of Christ and the resurrection had their own hesitancies and their own fears. They weren't really sure about what it was they were being called to do until the power of the Spirit of God took hold of them in a remarkable way that we're going to see more about shortly. My brother-in-law is a man who has had a a weak heart in his early 60s, and uh, he already has a heart pacemaker, has for a number of years. And recently we had seen him, and we knew that he had become rather weak and listless and run down, and his doctor had said, well, there's a simple problem, Glenn. You need a new battery. Your pacemaker needs a battery. And so Glenn had his surgery a week or so ago and got the battery replaced, which, of course, is a small surgical procedure. And we hear that he's doing great with the new energy for his heart pacemaker coming from a new battery with a longer lifespan than the one before. Maybe it's a poor illustration, a poor comparison, but I wonder how many of us are aware of the pulse power of the Spirit of God energizing our Christian lives. You know, Glenn, my my brother-in-law, is not directly aware. The the pacemaker doesn't do anything that, that makes him know moment by moment that he has a pacemaker, but he certainly knows if it's not doing at full strength what it's supposed to do. And I would suggest to you similarly, a Christian who is not operating out of the energy and the will and the direction and the support of the Spirit of God is a very different person than one who is doing things in their own strength alone. The passage before us is one that begins to point to things that are going to unfold in this book, showing how when clothed with the power of the Spirit of God, We are capable of many things we would not imagine or be comfortable thinking that we could do in our own strength. Christian witness, chief among those. First of all, then, this morning, I look at Acts 1-3 and also at verse 6 concerning what I'll call a believer's expectation of God's kingdom. We read that in 40 days that Jesus was still alive, this is before his ascension, He instructed the disciples, the disciple apostles, and he spoke to them about a subject that is named here as the kingdom of God. And so verse 6 tells us that disciples asked him, well, Lord, will you at this time, is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? That was a very specific question about things from their national heritage. But it was a question that had many mistaken ideas implicit in it. In fact, when John Calvin was commenting on this passage, he said that question 
has as many errors in it as it has words. The type of kingdom they were anticipating, first of all, was not the kingdom that Jesus was anticipating. The headquarters of the kingdom was not what Jesus was anticipating, and the timing of it was not the issue at all. Now, it's important to remember that these disciples who became the apostles were Israelites, and naturally, they were thinking with their Jewish master, who they revered as Lord and teacher, that he was teaching about what they thought would be a politically-based kingdom that would be set up in something like the way David or Solomon had ruled over their nation in great glory in times past. In fact, probably that it would even exceed the best glories of David or Solomon because after all, in their minds, this was the Messiah. And so now was the time for their grand Messiah after going through humiliation and death but resurrection to be installed on a golden throne in Jerusalem. And to rule with a, with a strong scepter there. And you remember how there had been discussions even up to the time of the death of Jesus as to who would be first in the government that Jesus would establish. You know, they were, we haven't gotten in the presidential uh, elections yet to where the Republican group is ready to say who will be in the cabinet. But that's always a big discussion. Who will be the Secretary of State? Who will be the Attorney General? Well, the disciples had been discussing that. And they were interested in that. And they were obviously still thinking, now that government is going to be set up. And Jesus is going to rule in a political way. And these hated Romans and that corrupt Herod will be swept out of the way. And the temple will be purified. And worship will be what God intended it to be in the Old Testament times. Glory, they were thinking. This is going to be great. Israel will be triumphant over all the kingdoms that have been our enemies. Well, Jesus had a very different concept. He intended a very different kingdom. And the first thing about it is that the book of Acts is going to emphasize clearly and strongly that his kingdom is not merely an Israelite kingdom for Israelites. It is not a localized geographical kingdom restricted to people of the Old Testament ethnic heritage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that it is rather for people who have the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whether Jew or Gentile, because as the New Testament is going to teach, that old wall of partition is broken down now. And the day of Pentecost is going to begin to show in a very vivid manner. If the Lord allows, we'll be dealing with that in just a couple weeks. And see how people of every language group, every tribe, from far-off lands, are being called equally to come and be members of the kingdom as the spiritual Israel. For it is a spiritual kingdom. And that's what it was so hard for these people to grasp. They wanted a literal kingdom, a visible place with a palace where you could go and visit the king in earthly terms. No, Jesus was not building on that model at all. Later on, Paul was going to write in Galatians 3.29 that if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and you are the heirs according to God's promise to Israel. Israel is a, a bigger thing now than merely being born a Jew of this particular land of Palestine. 
When Peter preached in Acts 2, he will quote from the prophet Joel, where God said, I am going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. Now, you see, it's not about castles or uh, ramparts or armies defending borders. The kingdom Jesus is talking about is the place, wherever it be, that the rule of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is established in the heart and mind of a man or woman of any nation. Now, we'll always include, of course, Jewish-born people who call Yeshua the Messiah, but it will extend equally to Turks and to Ethiopians and to Swedes and Brazilians and Chinese and Irish and Iroquois and Italians and, yes, even Americans. It's going to be an amazing and different kingdom that the world has never seen before. Jesus had said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise I'd raise an army and the army would fight for it, but that's not the kingdom. Now, I think there's an application for us even in this first point this morning. When we speak about a believer's expectation of God's kingdom, we have to ask what kind of expectation do we have? And I feel like this is always an appropriate thing to warn about in in an election year. Because it's very easy for us as American Christians to have our concerns raised in a year of much political activity in our own land. We're exercised. We're upset. We don't want to see our land be the way it is with the Ten Commandments being thrown out, with the righteousness of a government that would, that would at least pay a nod, and hopefully more than that, to ideas of biblical justice be active in our land, that our Constitution, which was formed on so many principles directly from Scripture, would itself not even be noticed or obeyed anymore. And we're upset about this, and we're out there working, and we're campaigning, and we're debating, and we're, we're saying, we've got to get America back into Christian principles, That's not entirely a wrong thing to pursue, of course. As long as you make a very careful separation in your mind that the sphere of the political realm of the United States of America is not the sphere of the kingdom of God. They are two different things. And every Christian, by all means, should be ready to run for Congress or your town board of selectmen. If that's what God leads you to do, you should go out there and work in elections. You should campaign for good people to be elected. Those are all Christian callings for us individually to be diligent about. But do not make the kind of mistake that these disciples were making when they thought the kingdom of God was the kingdom of their particular geographical and political nation. Note at no time has the kingdom of America and the kingdom of Christ been identical realities. We do well to remember that. Our first loyalty is to the unseen but very real kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would declare him and call people to bow before him. Now, secondly, after the believers had at least a moderate rebuke from Jesus about this expectation of God's kingdom, our text speaks next about a believer's preparation by baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not even going to get into that much what baptism in the Spirit is this morning, 
but just think about it in a preparatory way. And what we look at here is Jesus saying to them that they are to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father and to be baptized in the Spirit. And it made me think of what we've just been seeing in past weeks in the Olympic Games. Certainly one of the riveting moments as you're watching Olympic events is the start of any race. You know, a lot of talk goes on and the milling around of people, but then suddenly the athletes, whether they're swimmers or runners or whatever, are gathered at the starting blocks and each one gets in that particular position and you hear the official starter say, take your mark, long pause, get set, and all those muscles are coiled and ready to explode. And what if the next word was, stop? I, half of them would go into the pool anyway, just because they'd heard a sound. And yet, in a sense, that's what happened here in Acts 1-4. As Jesus was saying, look, there's a new era dawning. You're going to have a key role in it. Get ready. Take your marks. But Wait. Don't start without the empowerment, the enablement that I'm going to bring by the presence and the blessing of my Holy Spirit upon you. Don't make a false start and leap out on your own in this endeavor. I don't know about you, but but sometimes waiting for God's way and God's timing of doing things is one of the hardest things for me. I'm an activist by nature. If I see that there's a project to be done, a need to be filled, whether it's something in my own experience or in the experience of the church. I'm ready to go. Let's go. But I've learned over the years that there are times when God is saying, wait, stop, pray, consider, ask what my way might be, and don't proceed without me. Now, this whole matter of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something we'll see much more about in in coming weeks, and I'm not going to even try to spell it out here this morning. But one thing I I would want to make clear to you is that there's a false impression many people have, and that is that somehow the Holy Spirit is introduced for the first time in the book of Acts that you had the Gospels, you had all of the Old Testament, and, well, that doesn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. And now it's the book of Acts. Oh, here's the Holy Spirit appearing, making a debut with a bang. That's actually quite wrong. That's not what the Bible shows us at all. In fact, you go to the very first page and the second verse, Genesis 1-2. And the words are that the Spirit of God was hovering upon the unformed face of the creation. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Genesis 2-7 tells of God breathing his spirit into the man whom he had made and bestowing in that way on him the image of God. And you can trace many, you could make a a study, just take a concordance and look for the words Holy Spirit or Spirit in the Old Testament. You would accumulate dozens and dozens of references to the Spirit giving special bestowments to equip people to do things, whether they were Military leaders, uh, the Lord was, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Moses or something like that. Or perhaps someone working a miracle, Elijah, bringing someone back to life by the power of the Spirit. We read of elderly women, elderly wives in the Old Testament whose womb was opened, the Old Testament would say, by the moving of the Spirit of God. 
And the most notable thing is certainly that the activity of prophets in the Old Testament, where the Spirit is, is everywhere described as the being the one giving them voice to speak from God. As, as an example, 2 Samuel 23, David says there, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me and his word was on my tongue. You see, the Holy Spirit was very active in the Old Testament, but there was always this sense that his activity and presence were mysterious and especially sporadic, unpredictable, not a constant at all. And there was always this promise that God's Spirit would, in a coming day, move upon people in a broader, more generalized way. In John 7, uh, 39, it was predicted that that would happen. And again, in John 14, 16, Jesus said that after he departed, the Father would send, quote, another helper, name for the Spirit, to be with you forever. He said the Spirit would be the one who would reveal things, who would open things up and move upon the church with power. The Spirit would actually, in a real sense, be the presence of Jesus with his people. When he said, I will be with you forever, it was the presence of the Spirit that brought Jesus to be with his people forever. And so in the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, 49, Jesus had said the same thing that is said here in Acts 1. Stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. We'll learn a lot more about the Spirit in weeks to come. But the important thing is that these men and women are being promised that there would be a great power enabling them to do the work that God called them to do, the work of witness. We can believe, too, that he will equip us with his spirit if we wait for it and ask for it. Now, thirdly, this morning, I want you to dwell with me for a minute on Acts 1.8, very significant verse to this whole book, and see there a believer's participation in witness clothed with power. Here's what Jesus was saying to his first uh, era apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, those were words to the apostles, and I stressed last week, we don't have apostles today. We don't attempt to rewrite the work of the apostles or to be apostles or to relive their charge. They were special people. However, there is a sense in which this charge is to all of Christ's church. If we are going to be his witnesses, then we too are going to bear testimony to him, not just in the tightest little circle where we live most of our lives, our neighborhood, our family, our place of work, but in a wider circle, our community, And maybe a wider circle still as we and other believers participate together in taking the gospel to farther places. Now let's ask ourselves then what this work of being a witness is really all about. The main definition, or at least the most common definition, is the one that I got involved in 50 years ago when I saw the car accident. A witness is somebody who has seen something who presents a word about that and verifies what they have seen or what they have experienced to someone else. And that's the main thing most of us think about when 
the gospel says, you will be my witnesses. Go and tell other people what you have experienced or what you have known about Jesus Christ. Verify the facts. Tell the world that God came into this world of ours in human flesh in a man named Jesus who died as only God and man as one could die to rescue us from the penalty of our sins, that this person rose from the dead as no one has ever done, and give testimony and say, I know this is true because I've experienced it. Well, that's the main understanding of what a witness does. But I want to suggest to you there's a dimension that most of us don't think about in being a witness And it comes from a common word used for witness in the New Testament. The Greek word is one that is the word marturion. A lot of Greek words don't take a great deal of imagination to know what they are in English. A marturion is a martyr, someone who dies for a cause. The interesting thing is it's the same word, the word witness and the word martyr. And I used to ask myself, well, is that just some kind of a coincidence or what? Why would we say that one who dies for a cause is given the same descriptive word as someone who goes out and and bears testimony? I've come to see, I believe, over the years that there's a depth of meaning there where most of us are not thinking about. Because to really give witness to Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit means, as we say about other things, it's not about you. Why is it we get upset or or fearful or all knotted up when someone talks about our witnessing? We do that because we think it's all about me. What kind of a performance will I be able to give? Will I know the right words? This is uncomfortable. I I don't think the other person's going to be interested. They won't think well of me. They'll raise questions I can't answer. And all kinds of fears. But all of those fears are founded in it being about you. If a witness is actually a martyr, he's someone who dies to himself for the sake of the cause. And isn't Jesus calling us as his witnesses to die to being so concerned about ourselves and and how well we'll handle this and will we be able to pull it off and and be successful and be well thought of and and get results and someone will pray immediately to receive Christ as as a result of my witness. Are you willing to take your ego to the stake, in other words, and let it die? And say, Lord, I offer this life of mine. I'm weak. I don't speak well. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a philosopher. I know they're probably going to ask something I won't know the answer to. But I'm willing to put myself to death, in a sense, and come to others and tell what I know about this wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Because I love him more than I love myself. And I know that my fears about giving witness are 90% wrapped up in me. So put me to death. Put my self-pride to death. And let me speak. Let me be what Paul called a fool for Christ's sake if I have to. And know that you will use what I say and what I do once I have gotten myself off the throne. You know, I, I remember many years ago reading the passage of John sixteen seven. When Jesus was 
speaking to the disciples. And this was a passage about the Holy Spirit before he died. And he said to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I am going away so that the helper, the Spirit, can come to you. I used to think there isn't any way that it can be to anybody's advantage that Jesus would go away. If I was one of the 12 disciples living in close relation to him, and he said, it's to your advantage that I go away, I would say, Lord, that isn't possible. You've given me the privilege of of hearing your voice, of learning from you, of studying you who are God in flesh. How could it be an advantage that I would lose your vibrant presence? But actually, the answer there is is quite simple. What if Jesus had stayed on earth even after the resurrection and and made Judea or Jerusalem his home base and, and had to, as a man, be limited to that place or at least to one place at a time? The message and the power of the gospel of Christ would have been tied up there in Jerusalem. And it would have not been able to be known in Rome or later on in places like London or Beijing or Nairobi or New York City or Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You see, God's better thing was that Christ, present by his Holy Spirit, could go to all those places and be alive and powerful in the message taken to all those places. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5.16, said one time, Once we knew Christ after the flesh, now we know him that way no longer. See what he was saying? Once we had the great fact that Christ exhibited himself in this world as a man, that was grand, that was wonderful, and if you were privileged to be part of it, you would never forget it. But we don't have that anymore, and what we have of Christ is actually better. Because by his spirit, he now goes throughout the whole earth with the good news of salvation. Folks, as I conclude today, we need to come to the conclusion and understanding that witness for Jesus Christ is not about learning some kind of technique. It's not about learning a speech. There there have been things that are helpful along this line. The Evangelism Explosion campaign is one of the really good ones that some of you are familiar with. It teaches you some key questions to ask people, and, and those things are good. You can use those. But you know what? Having a program memorized or being some kind of an expert in the technique of what you think is witnessing is not God's calling. God's calling to witnesses is who will come And in a real sense, put themselves to death and not worry about what others are going to think of them or whether they'll have all the answers or whether they'll get it right every moment. Dying to self, who will come and say, Holy Spirit, inhabit me. Use my poor voice. Use my stumbling words. Use that which I have to say as one who testifies and multiply it with effectiveness and power as you make yourself known through me. That is what a witness has to understand. And you see, if you would understand that, you can be more or less fearless. Because what is going to happen to you after all? Are you going to die to give witness for Christ? Is someone going to say, oh, boy, that person's really awkward in the way they're always bringing up religion? Well, fine. 
Let that happen. But be sure you love that person and keep on loving them and speaking compassionately. And guess what? Whether you know it or not, the meaning of what you're saying is leaking into their understanding. Salvation for other people is the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. It's not our work. We don't manipulate it. We don't accomplish it by having our techniques right. We don't bring it to pass by our natural strength. In our weakness, in our honest words, in our prayerful, bearing testimony, God, by his Spirit, reaches other hearts. The women this morning sang a beautiful song about triumphant truths of Christianity, and it ended with them saying, how can I keep from singing? You know what? There's an exact same thing for every witness that is born with integrity to Christ. Acts 4.20 speaks about it. The apostles were dragged into jail. They were kept overnight and let go and said, don't you dare speak about Jesus anymore. The officials were pretty clear that they put the fear of things into them, and that wouldn't happen anymore. They went right out and started testifying more about Christ in the streets. And they brought them in and said, didn't we tell you? Didn't you hear our threat? And they said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. How can you keep from singing? How can you keep from witnessing to the power of God giving you a new life, if indeed he has? Your witness should be something the world cannot by any power suppress. Our Father, I ask that you would mold us into real witnesses. Thank you for many among us who, who know this truth, who know that it's not about technique, it's not about expertise, it's about weakness and fear being laid before you, and as we ask you, Lord, use my voice. Use my poor thinking, my poor intellect, to somehow give others a sincere testimony. Shape more willing witnesses out of us, we pray, Father, for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.